It's very difficult for the average citizen to find out what actually is going on because mm. none of the public health officers, none of the media uh, are actually covering what's actually going on. They're not covering the, the, the facts, which was a major reason why I wrote this paper. I mean, it was one of the reasons I wanted to just show something to my friends and family about what actually was going on and uh, mm. where they could find data and where they could find out what the truth actually is. I think the reason why people don't oppose it, and it's exactly the same as it is here, there's, I'd still say the majority of the population are completely behind the lockdowns. And this comes down to the assessment of risk. And uh, here we have to go back to last spring. And when the pandemic was declared, the benefits of locking down, restricting freedom, stay-at-home orders, isolation policies. The benefits were the perceived deaths that you would either postpone, delay, or even prevent. Well, what were, what were these numbers? The numbers were based not on any data because there was no data. Uh, the numbers were based on models, these particular epidemiological models that we all know so well now. But you know, models, it's a matter of garbage in, garbage out. And right. that turns out to be the problem that happened last spring, that the models rested on a set of assumptions, and those assumptions turned out to be drastically wrong. The models, for example, the, the fundamental problem I'll address initially is that all of these models, it, it sounds even bizarre to say this, and you might even think that maybe I'm lying, but the models assumed that people are like rocks, that they just go about their business regardless of what's happening around them. And so mm -hmm. if I'm visiting the store and interacting with people seven days a week, and there's a terrible virus around like smallpox, I just keep going about my business as if, the smallpox virus was not there. Um, well, that just turns out to be completely wrong and mm. false. And this, that assumption alone uh, generated these astronomical predictions about the numbers of deaths. And when combined with excessive reproduction numbers and excessive infection fatality rates, and uh, when combined with assuming that 0% of the population had immunity to the virus, uh, it just led to these kind of ridiculous forecasts. So yep. if you're going to say that in Canada, 260,000 people are going to die in the next three months, well, of course, everybody, yep. every reasonable human being is going to say, man, maybe I should stay home. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was that, those, um, those original forecasts, my understanding is, I think the name of the place they came from is the London Institute. Uh, the Empirical College of London was the, the one, earliest the one and the ones where that received the most attention and had the most influence uh, among governments. Yeah, I believe uh, both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump's administrations uh, leaned very heavily on those. And I've written articles previously about... Um, I can't remember his name, but the, the guy who was in, essentially ahead in charge of those. Niels Ferguson. Niels Ferguson's, thank you. Um, you're familiar, of course. Um, that 
he was the same guy who vastly blew out predictions of the, the deaths from mad cow disease, uh, and his models had already been proven not fit for purpose before they were relied on 18 months ago. He, he didn't have a very good track record. He also has no formal training in epidemiology. He's a physicist. Um, a lot of people, yeah, well, I mean, this is, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's not that somebody can't be wrong in the past and, and be right today, but um, yeah, there's grounds for skepticism. But regardless of, you know, his past and record. And that's exactly the point. You know, we, we should have, there should have been skepticism. This is uh, my understanding of what the scientific method is all about is healthy skepticism to attempt to disprove a, a theory or a set of assumptions until uh, there is no room left for any doubt. But we've never been given the benefit of the doubt that we can think for ourselves, and we've been treated like rocks. It, well, that's maybe that's how we've been politically treated. So this is one of the interesting things, though. You know, by so we basically instituted lockdown around the world at the end of March last year. But by the middle of May, and certainly by the beginning of June, we knew a lot. We knew that the virus tracked an, a normal mortality. That is that, you know, it wasn't killing children. It wasn't killing 50-year-olds. It's killing people that uh, have already reached, you know, their, their normal mortality, mortality for their given health. Mm -hmm. So we knew that. Uh, we also knew that the forecasts were completely wrong. Uh, that, you know, New Zealand, or sorry, not New Zealand, Sweden was supposed to have 96,000 deaths by July. I think they had 600. I mean, that's not off by a little bit. That's off by an order of magnitude. So we yeah. knew very early on that, that these forecasts were wrong, and therefore the benefits of lockdown were wrong. But yep. the problem wasn't sort of the science not working. The problem was the politicians not responding to the science. Yeah, and, exactly. and the other thing that's happened, I'm sure this has happened in New Zealand, it certainly happened in Canada. It's very difficult for the average citizen to find out what actually is going on because mm. none of the public health officers, none of the media uh, are actually covering what's actually going on. They're not covering the, the, the facts, which was a major reason why I wrote this paper. I mean, it was one of the reasons I wanted to just show something to my friends and family about what actually was going on and uh, mm. where they could find data and where they could find out what the truth actually is. Yep. Now, you mentioned Sweden. That's uh, something that I'd like to go down um, the tangent of just for a moment, if, if you feel um, comfortable to, sure. if you've researched it enough. Sure. Uh, certainly, I covered their preference for trusting people rather than mandating and micromanaging all behavior. They're basically saying, look, here's the information, here's our recommendations, but we're not going to put you in jail and, you know, run you over with riot police if if you you know disobey these these directives um and and there's a large amount of criticism especially uh, from conservatives who were a little bit more trusting of the the experts uh and they basically said yes but look at the greater number of deaths that sweden sweden is having then comparable re, uh, nations with with more severe lockdowns in their region. The lockdowns work because they're saving lives and Sweden does have a higher number of deaths. Uh, I actually haven't myself even looked into how Sweden has fared uh, overall so much further down the track compared to those other 
other jurisdictions in their region of the world. Can you um, give us an update on, on how they've done in, in comparison to policy and outcomes? So, first of all, the cumulative total number of people who have died per million of the population in Sweden is almost identical to the cumulative number of people per million who have died in the European Union. So compared to the rest of Europe, Sweden did exactly the same. Um, that's the first thing. Second thing, the excess deaths. Now your audience, if they don't know what an excess mortality is, they should look it up. So in any given year, there's an average number of people that, that are going to die. And there's an average number of people who are gonna die based on their health rate. And, uh, you know, the number might bounce around a little bit. And if it goes outside of a certain bound, we say that there's a statistical increase in the excess deaths. So Sweden has ended up with just 1% excess deaths over the whole year, which is almost nothing, almost wow. nothing. It's hardly even noticeable. Uh, now, the question is, uh, initially, though, in the months of March and April of last year, they did have a number, their, their excess deaths were high for that month. <clears throat> and the reason turns out to be, so lots of people looked into Sweden. First off, the number of deaths from COVID-19 last spring really depended on, there were two major, well, several major factors that explained it. One was, what was your 2019 flu season like? And Sweden had an exceptionally light, for some reason, an exceptionally light flu season in the fall of 2019. So a lot of people that would have died in 2019 in the fall ended up dying of COVID and other related things in the spring. So that was one major factor. It's got a terrible name. People call this the dry tinder uh, effect that, you know, there's just no, a lot of- sense. Australians are very familiar with uh, you're dry- You're familiar with dry tinder. Yes, of course you are, yeah. just like in British Columbia. Mm. Uh, you know, we protect our forests and leave all this woodstock in there and it blows up on us. Um, That's right. So that was one, ma one major factor. Um, the other major factor is the average age of your population average mm. uh, health, et, et, et cetera. So Sweden had a number of characteristics that, that hit them hard in the spring, but after that, they, they, did, they did fine. Now, interesting enough, a lot of people say, well, what about Finland and, and Norway, which had so much lower uh, mortality? Both Finland and Norway have a characteristic that's similar to New Zealand. They're almost islands in, in, in terms of their ability to uh, restrict their borders because there are so few border crossings. But the other thing to note about uh, Finland and, and uh, Norway is they, all, they also had less stringent lockdowns than Sweden did. So uh, it's not, they're not cases for, oh, look, at they have lockdowns and they had lower deaths. They had less lockdowns. Uh, uh, Why did they that. not get the same media attention for... Uh, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. And uh, there are other countries in Europe that had much less stringency than, than Sweden as well. Um, it might have something to do with it, you know, right off the bat, uh, for some reason, Sweden got this name of having zero restrictions, which was not true. They had some restrictions. They never had mass mandates. They didn't shut down their elementary schools, etc. They're sort of middle of the road yeah, uh, restriction yeah. wise, but uh, they were picked off. It might have come back again to Ferguson and the Imperial College of London model in that they made a a stark prediction about Sweden, namely these 96,000 deaths. Mm. And when Sweden, I think the reason why Sweden did not lock down as hard as others was mostly constitutional. 
Uh, they just didn't have the authority to do it. And yeah. I think they became a cautionary tale among pro-lockdown folks. And uh, There's debate about the authority that's been uh, claimed in various places around the world. I, I know um, in Australia, um, there's uh, many legal challenges to the the lawfulness of, of right. the directives uh, and and many of the governments are walking away from the charges and fines that they'd laid uh, and not willing to contest them uh, and one would presume that's because they're not willing to have the the precedence of defeat um, yeah. destroying the illusion of authority yeah we have several lockdown challenges in Canada as well um, I'm not a lawyer but my reading of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is that you know you can only uh, violate uh, that charter uh, under a demonstrable uh, and sufficient threat. <laughs> and I don't think any government around the world has demonstrated. Foreign military invasion is about the only reason I would um, support that. <clears throat> um, what, I, what I do support is government advice, public debate, transparent science. Show us your models, show us your assumptions, show us your evidence uh, and the data you're working from and let us contribute other variables to the conversation so we can all arrive at an informed conversation. Stop treating us like infants or yeah. rocks and start treating us uh, like educated adults. Yeah. I have a sort of a political economic, political economy theory about what's going on. Imagine you are a, a leader of some country and last uh, March you panicked or you you really believe the 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 model predictions and so you really thought you were facing something like smallpox and um hundreds of thousands of people in your country were about to die in the next month and mm -hmm. so you decide to lock down and now two months goes by and it turns out that those people did not die and uh there's clear evidence that the the virus tracks a normal mortality and that you should clearly therefore direct your resources to protecting the few people that are vulnerable. But what are you going to do? Are you going to stand up at a press conference and announce that you made a terrible mistake and that you locked down the country and you had a 30% drop in your G quarter GDP and that, oh, I'm sorry? You're not going to say something like that. You're going to say, oh, my goodness, um, you know, I, I, I saved your life, but I have to continue to save your life. And so I have to continue with lockdown because you know eventually Maybe it might take one year, two years, 10 years, but you know eventually a vaccine might come or you know that eventually enough of the population will be uh, infected that you develop a natural herd immunity. So you know eventually you'll come out of this thing and at that point you can then announce that I saved everybody's life. And I think that's the problem that virtually the whole world is in. That, that you know, whether you're in Australia or Canada um, is, you know, you have to announce that you saved everybody's life, just like what's going on in the United States right now. Uh, and and this is the difficulty is, you know, Australia, uh, I maintain there is no pandemic. There never has been. There's been uh, certainly an infectious disease going around, but pandemic is a very strong word and it's deliberately strategically used, I believe, uh, to manipulate the fears and emotions of citizens. And it works incredibly well. Uh, but the, the reality is we've had absolutely pedestrian levels of fatality. Our health system hasn't come close to being overwhelmed at any point. 
and all of the burden has been put on the population and the economy and and the other health factors going on in our society. Um, meanwhile, they hold up uh, the the numbers in England and Italy and New York, and and they say, "See, we saved you from this. If I hadn't have taken these actions, then you and Australia would have been having the same kind of." fatal outcomes as all of these other places. This is how bad it could have got if we hadn't acted decisively. What do you say to that? So I'm going to give your listeners a reference, two references, uh, depending on how, uh, how confident they are. So last summer, an economist, three economists at UCLA discovered something about the virus. And uh, I have to take a step backwards. There's something called the reproduction number. I'm sure you've heard about it, this RT. The reproduction number is if I get infected, how many people on average am I going to infect? And right. the, way we, the way lockdown is talked about is that you have to keep this reproduction number below one because if the reproduction number goes above one, we get this explosive exponential growth in cases and deaths. And this is the New York, the Italy, the, you know, the things that we want to avoid. And, uh, you know, so we'd like to have it less than one. Well, what these three economists discovered, um, among a couple other things, was that the virus behaves exactly the same way in every country, regardless of how the country has dealt with it, whether they deal with it um, through severe lockdowns, light lockdowns, no lockdowns, it doesn't matter. And this is how it behaves in terms of the R value. So initially the virus enters a population and the R value is enormous and uh, kind of all over the map. So the, the virus is exploding. It's at a very low level. There's very few people infected, but it, the number of infections is exploding. And in that sense, I would disagree with you slightly and say that, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, initially there is a, there was a pandemic last, last March, early April, but within 20 to 30 days, of, a, of the virus entering into the population 20 or 30 days after 25 people have died, the R number drops down to one. And then it just hovers there. Uh, in other words, we then enter what we call a, an endemic state. And in that sense, I would agree with you now that really since last May, uh, the world has been in an endemic state, not a pandemic state. We're all mm. basically standing in line waiting to either get vaccinated or infected. Um, and and oh, so that's one. So that, that paper is called Four Stylized Facts of COVID-19. Anybody yeah. can Google it and look it up and you can follow the graphs in the, in, the, in the paper. It's very fascinating. But the second reference is this. You can go to something called Our World in Data. And for your listeners, if they don't know where to find out numbers about anything, our World in Data is a, is a web-based resource put out by John Hopkins University. And you can actually select the reproduction number for any country in the world. And you can select it for the world. And you can see this happens. Every country is the same thing. The reproduction number, when it enters the population, starts off really high. And then it just goes down to one. Now, here is the economic application. Why does this happen? It happens because we're not rocks. And when you're in a population that's the virus has entered and people are getting infected all around you, the R value is greater than one, guess what? You back off a little bit. You don't go to the store seven times a week. You go once. 
and maybe you make a phone order and maybe you just, you know, you don't have as many people over or whatever. You slow down. And when you slow down, the virus slows down. And when the R value dips way below one, guess what? You go out and you do things. If you're a person that's, uh, you know, you're 85 years old, you got heart disease, et cetera, you're really careful. If you're 19 years old and you're perfectly healthy, you're not so careful. And uh, so what happens is we just, human beings individually end up managing the virus. And this is the fundamental reason why lockdowns don't have any effect. Um, When you do lockdown, there's enough non-compliance that the virus remains endemic. And when you don't lock down, people rationally respond and the virus becomes endemic. And so all of these costly things that we're doing uh, turn out to be for, for next for nothing. And so you can look around the world and the virus just behaves the same way, uh, you know, country to country. Okay. So let me play the devil's advocate. Uh, and by devil, I mean government. Um, if people are going to behave voluntarily anyway um, as governments are mandating they should behave what's the harm in in a lockdown what's the actual cost that's been incurred by the as opposed to uh, what you're describing as possibly Canada's greatest public policy failure I get this comment all the time it just it makes me laugh almost imagine there's somebody who has a walnut for dinner and the way they're going to eat the walnut is they're going to take some uh, a nut cracker and they're going to crack the 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 walnut and uh you know eat it other people are having other things for dinner and now the government comes along with a sledgehammer and smashes the nut but in the process smashes everybody else's meal as well and then they say well what's what's your complaint you know we, we cracked the nut you were going to crack it anyway. So, I mean, it, it's ludicrous to say that on the one hand, if we didn't have lockdown, people would optimally respond. I will take my own personal circumstance, my own personal health, my own context and design the right policy for me that might be different from you. You know, you might live in a rural area. You might only see one person a month. I might be highly in an urban area. I might be young. You might be old. You're telling me that the government doing a one-size-fits-all blanket policy that that locks down, crushes everything, that somehow that's going to be the same as mm. as you know an individualized individual. It's equivalent to you know I don't know if you're you're old enough to remember in the 1970s when we had wage and price controls. The idea that a government bureaucrat could sit there and decide what the price of soap should be in every mm-hmm. single jurisdiction in Australia or Canada. And, did, did and, and somehow he would do as well as the individual businessman who was you know, knew his customers, etc. I mean, it's ludicrous. Where did that happen? Uh, I haven't heard of price controls outside of Stalinist Russia. Oh, in Canada, the United States, Britain. I mean, there's price controls. <laughs> you know, Britain had price controls after World War II that didn't really get removed until Margaret Thatcher. Wow. Um, you know, it's, 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 but it's along that sort of uh, uh, line, right? Uh, right? You can have a government regulation that treats everybody the same if everybody is in the same circumstance. But when people are fundamentally in different circumstances, it makes no sense whatsoever okay. to have these sort of crushing. So I don't know what you've done with schools. Well, your schools are probably open in Australia, but you know, and that, we, yeah, that, we have shut down schools and universities here. 
Uh, but like, which is crazy. I mean, you're you're taking a group of people that are effectively unharmed by the virus and destroying a lot of their human capital. Yeah, that's right. Uh, schools have had long and large shutdowns here, uh, certainly in the uh, socialist state of Victoria. Um, they, they've had extended and prolonged shutdowns and, and much like the rest of the world, it seems to be an artifact of uh, union scientific research as opposed to actual scientific research. Um, and well, this is another politi political economy kind of problem is that there are lots of winners with lockdown. Mm. You take academics, you know, like myself. I mean, what I get to have, I get to still come to work, but I have now a private university. I, you know, I always joke that universities are great places with other students. Um, you know, <laughs> I haven't lost my job. My salary hasn't been reduced. Um, mm. There's less traffic on the road because people are forced at home in many ways. My life has been okay. And so yep. lots of people are big winners with lockdown. And so, of course, they support them. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the cost. Uh, what is the real world economic, financial, business, social, psychological, biological, medical health cost? Uh, in, in what areas have you measured um, the cost of the actions taken? Okay, so first off, you know, I, I did not measure any costs. I, I was reporting what other people were doing. Um, but um, uh, let me answer that question in sort of three stages. So the first thing, last year when people were trying to figure out, you know, should we lock down or not? So on the benefit side, they use these ridiculous models to predict we're going to save millions of people. Okay, so that's wrong. On the cost side, all that they considered was what would be the fall in GDP from locking down? So mm. if I'm going to keep people home, how much goods and services are lost? Well, that's uh, a cost for sure, but but that's just a small fraction of the actual costs. And uh, you know, so by only considering a small fraction of the costs, you really bias the presumption that lockdowns are a good thing to do. So what have we learned in the last six months? In the last six months, we have learned that the costs from locking down are nuanced there are things a lot of things that maybe you just wouldn't have thought about a year ago and that they just seem to be in terms of number of categories endless uh you can just go you know the, they're just endless lengthy lists you can you can start uh you know you can start with mental health issues the problems of isolation uh loss of educational opportunities deaths that are the consequence of unemployment, um, poor health because you didn't get screen, you know, we, re we eliminated all kinds of cancer and other health screenings last, last semester. So, I mean, the list is just goes on and on and on. No one has come up with a full, set, a full list yet and nobody has measured uh, all of these things. And I think it's gonna take a long, long time because a lot of these things are gonna filter through. You look at, for example, you, you, you close down elementary schools, that is certainly going to affect uh, graduation rates, which is going to affect the long-term uh, well-being of, of this generation. Those, those effects are going to be, come a long way. Mm -hmm. So what I did in my report, I, I borrowed a, a little tool by a professor, Brian Kaplan at George Mason University, which I think really is a better way of thinking about the costs at this moment in time. And he plays this little um, uh, thought exercise. 
So I want you to imagine what your life would have been like last year with the virus. So the virus is around, just like H1N1 was around in 2018. The virus was around, but there were no isolation policies, no lockdown policies, etc. You just we were just gonna live our lives as we normally would live our life, knowing that there is a virus around that that uh, uh, you know is a nasty thing if you get it and you're 80 years old, etc. So think about that. Now I want you to think about the next question is how many months of this last year would you have sacrificed? Would you have said how many months of your life would you say, I'll, I'll have my life be two months shorter, three months shorter to have lived in that world. Now, for some people, maybe I'm 85 years old. I'm going to die if I get COVID. So I really like lockdown. So I'm not willing to give up anything to live in a world where we didn't have lockdown. Okay, fine. We'll put a zero for him. Maybe for you, you sound like somebody who might have been like me. I would have been willing to give up six months of my life to have avoided all the garbage that I had to put up with this last year. So for me, it's six By months. six months of our life, do you mean uh, Gone. at the end to yeah, bring well, out? Well, we think, okay, we want to, we'll, we'll lose them at the end. but Or if yeah. you want, you can think of 2020 was only a month, a year of six months. That's hard to think about, but imagine there was only a six-month year. You would have sacrificed six months of your life just to have avoided uh, those things. Anyway, now think of what that would number would be for the average Australian or the average Canadian. Brian Kaplan thinks that, the a low ball estimate is two months. I think I agree with him. I think that's a low ball estimate. I think the average citizen in Canada, and I don't know about Australia, would have sacrificed four months. But let's make it two months. Well, there are 38 million people in Canada. And if you take two months times 38 million, that works out to being about uh, 6.3 million life years. And if you want to convert that to the number of 80-year-olds that died, it works out to about 640,000 80-year-old deaths. So in Canada, from COVID, we had about 25,000 deaths. But by locking down, we killed the equivalent of 640,000 80-year-olds. That's not even close. Not even close, right? But so, uh, that, that's willingly, voluntarily sacrificed time, not actually impacted on the population right so here's so let's go back maybe to how an economist thinks so an economist is going to say look at i have to compare apples to apples all the time so if you're going to tell me that the cost of covid is that twenty-five thousand people lost their lives mm. i need to convert the cost in terms of lives as well so i know there are these costs out there you know these costs are out there you yeah. know that you personally have suffered from these lockdown costs and so when I ask you the question, how many, how much time would you have been willing to spend of your life to have avoided right. those lockdowns? I'm asking you, can you convert those lockdown costs into time? Mm. So if you tell me it's two months and if that's the same for everybody, that's the average value. Mm. Then if I add up across all the people and then I assume everybody lives 70 years, uh, I get 6.3 million life years and uh, I can convert that into 80 year olds if I want or, yeah. or 25 year olds if I want or, or, or whatever. Um, so that, that's all that that's doing. So what my, the Brian Kaplan exercise does is I think quite beautifully because it's asking you 
you know all the things that happened to you. You know, you make an assessment in terms of time and loss of life. And so we'll add those things up. So that, that his methodology for now seems like I, uh, the right thing to do. I, I, um, your argument is really, really sound, uh, even without a, a measurable, it, to me, it's persuasive without the evidence and, and your, your methodology for, uh, comparison, um, isn't terrible, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably just wanting something a little bit more tangible and concrete than theoretical. Yeah. Um, but well, I mean, with, without the tangible, it's still a persuasive argument. You're absolutely right. We know this already, that people aren't rocks. We're not robots. We do adjust our behaviour according to perceived threats, um, not, not like a toddler on a road. Uh, we're not infants in society when there is a pandemic and we do perceive the risk and we are informed um, about the risks. Uh, even just the manipulation of our fears and emotions is really, really good uh, behaviour altering um, policy without the need to, as you said, bring the sledgehammer to the walnut. Right. So um, remember the, the reason, the fact that we're not rocks, this is why there are no benefits or the benefits are trivial to lockdowns, mm. right? So that's on the benefit side. And I'll just address another thing. So here's another thing. Suppose you said, I don't like that cost game that Alan is playing. Um, here's another thing that the early cost benefit studies did that is really sneaky. So they said, okay, uh, let's take the Imperial College of London model and the Imperial College London model predicts 260,000 deaths in Canada. Well, let's put a dollar value on those on those deaths because we're going to compare them to the dollar value of lost GDP. Right. Well, what's the value of the life? And this is the staggering thing. They assumed, almost all the models assumed that one, every life had exactly the same value and that value was $10 million. So $10 million is just way too high. Two, the idea that every life has the same value is ludicrous because that assumes that the value of another day of your life is zero. So if you're if you're 20 years old and uh, you've got another you know 70, 50 years to live, or you're 90 years old and you're gonna die tomorrow, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Yeah. I apologize yeah. for my phone there. Um, you know, uh, get it, or we might need to pause anyway while it rings. <clears throat> I, I stop. There you go. Stop straight to voice um, So of course everybody would like to live longer, which means of course the value of your life is, is not the same at 20 as it is at 80. Um, mm. So if you just make this adjustment, so this is known by everybody. This will be very hard for a lot of people to grab emotionally that you even can put a number uh, on, on, on a life's value. Or, or so me, when people ask me this question, I ask I turn around this way. Have you ever been to a funeral of somebody that's 85 years old? Of course you have. Have you ever been to a funeral of somebody who's five years old? They are not the same thing. When mm. people will go to a funeral of a five-year-old, that is an absolute tragedy, right? Mm. Everybody is crushed and devastated. The parents of that child may never get over it, right? Mm. Mm. And if you're going to tell me that every life is the same, then you should feel exactly the same as when your 85-year-old great-grandfather died. Nobody yeah. feels that way because we all recognize uh, the incredible loss it is in the yeah. value of a life when a child dies. Yeah. So nobody behaves as if, the value of the life of their life is independent of how old they are. Yeah. So 
if you just change these models, if you say, okay, uh, the value of a life of a 10 year old is like about 14 million bucks, but the value of the life of an 80 year old who still thinks he's going to live for another 10 years is only about $2 million in Canada. Right. If you just make that adjustment, then lockdowns don't pay. Wow. So even that, that sneaky little thing that was done last March, uh, that, that just correcting that lockdowns are a bad idea. So this is, alone. Kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that most people won't appreciate or won't have any because it's not being covered in the media and, and there's no. And it's buried know. inside the model, right? It's buried inside these mathematical right. models that the average person can't understand, which again is why I wrote my report. So there's actually four yeah. critical assumptions that were made in these studies that uh, they're not hard to understand, but right. you have to sort of have a knowledge to be able to sift through the models and see what they're doing. And your and, report and, details these four. And my, my, my report goes through these four assumptions and shows that you just vary any one of them and, and lockdowns no longer matter. I think transparency of modeling and science, it's transparency of these assumptions um, is absolutely critical to asking us to support and trust the science and the experts. Yeah. Um, yeah and just, to, just to summarize, I mean, the assumptions are one, uh, built-in parameters that, that make the virus explode, assuming that nobody changes their behavior. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, the, that's the critical faulty assumption. That's, that, that's, that's, that's by right far there. the most critical. Mm. Um, this one we just talked about, assuming the value of life is constant across everybody and across your life. Mm. And three, not only comparing, only using GDP for costs. Those are the yeah, four cool. critical things that... Uh, so in Canada, we had some excess deaths last March and April. And excess death statistics don't tell you what people died from, uh, which is actually another issue about COVID-19 is, you know, the classification of what killed you. Um, mm. But we do know that the excess deaths last spring were among people that were over 70. So maybe they were likely COVID deaths. We started to have excess deaths again in September, and we had excess deaths throughout the rest of the year. Not a lot, but but some but they were mostly from people under the age of 60. Now, these people are not dying of COVID. So what are they dying from? They're probably dying from the lockdown, the effect of lockdown, the not being having things screened, the, the deaths of despair, the overdose deaths, the suicides, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And uh, suicide deaths is something that I've anecdotally heard has has uh, blossomed might be an unfortunate choice of word, but if, if you take my meaning, the, the number has increased unacceptably uh, in Australia and, and some so, of the places that have had worse lockdowns. But the media can't report on them because it's, it's a faux pas. It, it's, it's, uh, it's not done um, because the theory goes that if you report on suicides, you incentivize more. And so uh, an increase in the number of suicides necessarily would go unreported, even if directly caused by lockdown policies. So I, I think... Um over the next year or two, it will be too late, really. But uh, academics are going to start doing serious audits of deaths. So one of the things that uh, we know is sort of going on when, you know, when somebody has died and they've died by suicide, by drug overdose and with an opioid, how do you count, classify that death? Do you classify it as a opioid overdose or do mm -hmm. you classify it as a suicide? Some jurisdictions do it one way. Some jurisdictions do another way. So just looking at suicides um, with the official statistics might be kind of misleading.
Yeah. And uh, there's that issue. There's the issue of, you know, a guy, somebody had five comorbidities, but got COVID in the last three days of his life. I mean, we, you know, in the US, some hospitals were paid more money to have deaths by COVID. Well, of course, every doctor writes down COVID. You know, mm -hmm. the, the problem with uh, cycle thresholds on PCR testing and number of cases, I mean, there's just on and on and on, um, which makes it very difficult to compare a lot of statistics across countries because you don't know if the procedure was the same in calculating these things, which again is the reason why excess death numbers are kind of useful when you compare yeah. across jurisdictions to look at. No, I think you're right. I think the, the theoretical model that you've come up with is incredibly useful. Um, I didn't understand that it was theoretical as opposed to um, tangible um, mm. or, or projected. Um, yeah. And so that's an important distinction. Um, and But then again, so is the entire COVID modelling of costs avoided. Uh, it, it's entirely theoretical. Um, and 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 clearly falsifiable because of all the terrible assumptions they build into their modeling. Um, well, except now, you know, the data, I think the data is in. Uh, you know, we've got about, there's at least 20 studies that were using different methods, different techniques, different disciplines, different data, uh, mm. different countries, showing that there's just no relationship between the stringency of lockdowns and the progression of the virus. And again, it goes back to, you know, this endogenous, you know, people are not only aware endogenous? of the virus, but they're aware of the of the restrictions. Sorry, what does endogenous mean? Oh, endogenous means that 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 people are not rocks, that people are actually making decisions based on right. the changing environment that 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 they that they live in. Yeah, certainly. Professor Doug Allen, incredibly insightful and um in intellectually stimulating, rewarding conversation with you. Um, it, it helps put some some furniture around what so many of us have been feeling for a long time. And um, and you know, really, hard, it's hard to counter the emotional manipulation and propaganda of "oh, you just you know don't care about killing my grandma" um, kind of kind of answers. Um, and so. It's, it's good to be able to do some rational thinking in, instead of um, just sheer emotionalism and safetyism. So okay. uh, appreciate yeah. the work you've done to help, help some of us find the information we need to think about this with a little more clarity. Right. Thank you very much for your time. And um, those links will be beneath the, uh, the video where you're seeing this. And certainly if they're not there, there'll be the link to the post on the website. If you're just listening to this uh, on podcast or, or somewhere else, uh, the place you can get more information is goodsource.news. And um, a big thanks to all those people who voluntarily put their hand in their pocket and support the ongoing production, research and time it takes to maintain goodsource.news uh, for all of the contributors, editors, behind the scenes people, uh, etc., uh, to make sure that we're not entirely dependent on the lying harlot media and big tech for the best of our information. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, that's it for this episode, and we will see you later.